Psalm 72, if you'd like to open your Bibles there this morning. So last, while you're turning there, last week Terry and I had our first Sunday with those of you who have children with your children. And actually we had a good time. It was uh, uh, interesting. It's a very different environment. Um, I had to, one child was doing something very strange to try and get attention from other children. And so I went over to him and asked him if he was okay. And he just kind of looked at me. And he's, he's here this morning, so he remembers this. But he just kind of looked at me and I said, you don't look like you're okay. And uh, I said, do we need to get your parents? Because, you know, maybe you're sick. No, big eyes, no. So, yeah, it was kind of fun. But uh, uh, one thing with them, uh, you got soap last week. All, all of the kids' families got a gift of soap. Uh, because they made soap bars into Bibles. And uh, that was to encourage them also to remember to bring their Bibles. So those of you who have kids, if you can encourage them to bring their Bibles, and they're going to be learning how to use their Bibles um, in that time. But today we're going to be talking about the creation. So looking forward to that. Psalm 72 is commonly referred to as a royal psalm. There are psalms of lament. There are psalms of lament. Psalms are the ones that are sad and uh, grieving and crying out to God um, for his help in the situation and sometimes just expressing um, the brokenness of this world. a lot of people are attracted to the lament psalms and that's why people go there when they're going through difficult times in their life. There are ascent psalms. Ascent psalms uh, are towards the end of the, the collection of psalms and they were sung as they would ascend up to the temple. They were part of the process of going to the temple. They're shorter ones and, um, and they would be sung in that environment. There are wisdom psalms, Psalm 119, the really long one that everybody knows is a wisdom song, ta- uh, psalm talking about God's word and the wisdom that can be um, learned from it. And this, there's other kinds too, but this one is commonly referred to as a, as a royal psalm. It's also called a coronation psalm. And we'll talk about uh, that in a moment. It begins with, in our uh, English translations, most of them begin, and remember the Psalms, each Psalm does not start with verse one um, after the big number, like here, 72. Verse 1 actually starts with any inscription that's above the psalm. Now, for if you're using an ESV, it says, Give the king your justice, which is not what I'm talking about. But right above the first verse, it says, Of Solomon. And those, in, those inscriptions or superscriptions are actually considered part of the text by the Hebrew people. This one says, Of Solomon. And so we know that uh, it has something to do with Solomon. It can mean for Solomon. The word that's translated of can mean for Solomon. It could also possibly mean about Solomon. Um, of Solomon could communicate by Solomon. But what we know from that statement is that it's somehow connected to Solomon as the king. And because of that, some people believe it was written by Solomon himself. Uh, But if you go down to the end of Psalm 72, this is 
before we read it, I want you to know what you're listening to, so that's why I'm explaining this at this point. If you go down to the end of Psalm 72 and verse 20, it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Uh, Psalm 72 is the end of book two of the Psalms. And book one and book two are considered to contain the prayers of David. And David isn't going to be a main writer now after this. He has, I think, three, three more Psalms that are his that are in from, from 72 to the end. The other ones are going to be written by other people. Uh, but this statement, the Psalms of, I mean, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, seems to give a clue that this is written by David, that this is a prayer of David. The prayer of David, the son of Jeff, Jesse, are ended. So it, it, it would, in its most obvious sense, seem to be stating that this is the last of his and it's written by him. If that's true, then the way we can approach this psalm is that it's written by David for Solomon on the day of his coronation. If you go back into First and Second Samuel, when Solomon becomes king in his coronation day, David has something written that he speaks, and it's very similar to this psalm. Some people think maybe Solomon took David's speech and made it into a prayer. Others think that this is just a, David's condensed version of what he said to Solomon when Solomon was becoming king. But I would approach this from the standpoint uh, that it is written by David for Solomon as a prayer for Solomon on the day of his coronation. And it's also believed then that for every Davidic king, every king that was a descendant of David, which would have been over the uh, uh, Judah and Benjamin, those southern tribes, every king thereafter had this prayer, this psalm used at their coronation in the Davidic line. So it's an important one. It's an important one to the Jews and it sets it up as a royal psalm and it sets it up as a uh, coronation psalm. So we'll approach it that way this morning. David's coronation prayer for his successor and his son Solomon. So let's read Psalm 72 together. Of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. There are two phrases here that I want you to pick up on. That was one of them. Uh, in verse 4, crush the oppressor. And verse 9, lick the dust. And I'm not going to say a lot about them this morning. I just want you to know that that is what we call a longitudinal theme in Scripture. And it's a redemptive historical theme in Scripture. 
And it, both of those statements tie back to Genesis 3. I'll mention something later, but when, when Eve is promised a son who would crush the serpent's head, this, state, this phrase, crush the oppressor, is intended to take us right back to that. Um, and uh, the idea of enemies licking the dust is the serpent crawling in the on his belly in the dust. He eats dust. Um, so just to throw that in there as we read that, and we'll come back to it later, but I wanted you to catch those two. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked from him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is a worn out phrase, but it's true. So I'm gonna use it, that we are living in historic times. Now, I have this cynical side to me, which depending on who you read out there, cynicism is sin or cynicism is good. I, I tend, because I'm a cynic to a certain degree, to think it's good and not a sin. So that's how I deal with it. But there is this cynical side to me and when I say that we're living in historic times, my cynical side kind of nudges me and wants to remind me that history is happening in all times. But at the same time, as I watch what's happening around us in the world, it's kind of an interesting time to be alive. Tom Brady is 45 and playing in the NFL. I mean, if that's not major history, what else can you say, you know? USC is making a comeback from its lost days on the football field. History is happening all around us, but there's probably something else that's going on that's more important. When you look at Russia reasserting itself and going down into Ukraine and invading it and what's happening in Europe and what's happening in Asia, we've got aircraft carriers and stuff now cruising from port to port to show our power and we're having meetings over and over with Taiwan and Japan and South Asia because we're worried about China. There's stuff happening that just hasn't been happening for a very long time. But something that just happened in the news, and it was, I wasn't glad it happened, but it was like, well, I'm glad I'm preaching on Psalm 72 right now, because we are seeing the second, long, well, we've seen the second longest serving monarch in Europe just pass away. It's two years short of being the longest serving monarch. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II passed away. And we're in this 
this phase of watching Charles become king. King Charles III now is his name. Just everyday ordinary Charles, we're supposed to believe, is now Charles III, King Charles III. And that's history. I mean, none of us, I don't think any of us here, are old enough to remember when, maybe, maybe you are, I don't know, makes me feel better about my own age, but maybe you're old enough to remember before Queen Elizabeth was queen and, and the, what took place before her. We read about that stuff in history books. We're watching it happen as this, as this woman passed away and this man is getting ready to ascend the throne. And I've been amazed uh, for a guy who doesn't get really caught up in a lot of formality and pomp and circumstance. I've been amazed at the pomp and circumstance that surrounds this. It's just phenomenal. All the little things they do. And, uh, and we will sometime in the future be seeing King Charles III's coronation. Elizabeth, I, I didn't realize this. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite old enough to be alive when she was coronated, but uh, she waited a year before she was coronated, after, after I believe it was her father died. Um, she waited a year before she accepted the coronation or they had the coronation. So I don't know how long Charles will wait, but just what we've been seeing is pretty amazing. And I honestly, this is where my cynical side starts to come out again. I find it slightly ironic and intriguing the level of interest Americans have in the British monarchy. You ever sit back and say, what is the deal? Why do we care? I mean, we spent... We, we fought a whole war to gain independence from them and we're fascinated by them. And, and what they do and their little choices and, and all of the Harry and Meghan stuff that's going on out there. And we established an incredibly different form of government from them so that we would make sure that no one man or woman ever had all the power. And yet we're fascinated by the monarchy. There was a really interesting article a few weeks ago uh, when Queen Elizabeth, um, when the news came out, I guess it was a couple weeks ago, when the news came out about her passing, that um, someone wrote that uh, he was trying to explain why we have such a fascination with monarchy, the, the British monarchy. And his argument was that deep down inside of us, we all long for a monarchy because that's God's plan. When Solomon says that he put, that God put eternity in our hearts, there's something that in us that longs for something that God has promised. And what God has promised is a king who for all of eternity will reign over his subjects. And, and I, he made a pretty convincing argument as to uh, why we are so fascinated with this power structure and we don't necessarily realize it. But we are here at this point watching historically the end of one monarch's reign and the beginning of another's reign and watching Elizabeth pass and King Charles ascend to the throne. And as we come to Psalm 72, that's really what's happening. One monarch, regardless of whether Solomon wrote this about himself or David wrote it about Solomon, what we have here is a king, a king who is being succeeded by his natural heir, Solomon, the one giving up the throne 
and the other one succeeding him and ascending the throne. So what we're watching happen in real life in England is what was happening back in this time with David and Solomon. As I mentioned earlier, this psalm was used in every coronation, we believe, of every Davidic king who followed Solomon. And it's composed in the form of a prayer, making requests of God regarding the character of the king, the rule of the king, the subjects or people of the king, um, and the kingdom of the king, what it will be like. And as we consider what David expressed to God, there's four things that I want for us to catch in this psalm. This is, a, this is an amazing psalm. I mean, I, as, as I was studying it and reading about it, um, I found out that, that it's been used extensively for Advent series. A lot of pastors will use this for Advent, uh, Psalm 72. Some of them will use it for a particular Sunday during Advent. Um, it's often used as a four-part series for Advent. There's so much material in here uh, that David, as David composed this and put it together, um, it, it is highly debated how it should be cut up or, or dissected and, and how many sections there should be, anywhere from four to seven. You could, you could actually put together a series of seven sermons based on the topics in here. Uh, I'm not going to do that, and I don't have seven points for this morning. I actually, I actually condensed this down to four main ideas that I combined into two groups. So we're going we're gonna to look at two things, two main things this morning. Each two main thing has two ideas. But there's four things that I would like you to catch this morning. David's prayer was first that the king would be a righteous ruler. There's... there's a lot of statements that David makes about God giving the king righteousness. A second thing that David prayed for is that this king would be an eternal ruler. An eternal ruler. A third thing that he prays for is that this king would be a universal ruler. And fourthly, he prays that this king would be a caring or compassionate ruler. And this king again that he's praying for is Solomon. There's, there's just so many underlying currents of thought that's going on here with David. Um, this, this eternal ruler, this universal ruler, this caring and compassionate ruler, this righteous ruler, they all tie back to Genesis 3. And I, I would really like to approach that this, this morning from that standpoint, but I just don't have the time to do it. But, but uh, I'll, I'll talk about it. There's a little bit of that. I'll come to that later. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. But um, David had these prayers, and, and David is like us. We oftentimes have things that we want so badly that we actually end up going to God and saying, will you do this? Typically, we do that at the point of which we have exhausted our own resources instead of doing it on the front end and saying, God, this is, this is coming up. Help me to think correctly about this. Help me to trust you in this. Um, help me to be dependent upon you. 
Um, but, but whether we do it at the beginning or we do it at the end, there are things in our lives as Christians that we reach a point that we go to God and we ask him, we present it to him. And that's not a bad thing, that's a very good thing. We're acknowledging our dependence and our inability. And that's what David is doing here. He wants badly to see certain things happen and particularly with Solomon. But like David, we don't always get our prayers answered immediately, do we? And we wait and we wait and we wait. And David's prayer took a long time, but eventually God answered David's prayer. And, uh, and, and you know where I'm going with this today. I, I, you just know, all you gotta do is read this Psalm and you know where I'm going. But I want to start where David was and understand who David was praying for when he prayed these things and what David wanted to see happen in the kingdom that God had established. And then we'll talk about how David's prayer was eventually answered. The first part of David's request was for a king that would rule in righteousness and compassion. Those two things really go together. That's why I decided to combine them. While David talks about righteousness separately from compassion in one sense, at the same time, he he weaves the two together into one idea. If a person is a righteous person, compassion, caring, mercy, kindness will flow out of that righteousness. I would suggest to you this morning that if our perceived righteousness leads to harshness and unkindness and and things like the Westboro Baptist Church picketing the funerals of soldiers, that we have lost a correct idea of God's righteousness. God's compassion, God's mercy, God's kindness ties very closely with God's righteousness. And David brings that to us here. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge, that goes with the justice. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. David asked God to give a love of justice and righteousness to the king. Throughout the Bible, as I said, justice and righteousness are closely connected as a possessed quality of God with justice or just and righteous are closely connected and justice and righteousness are the outworking of that inner quality of being just and righteous. There are places in the Bible where the word used for just is interchangeable with the word used for righteousness. It can be translated both ways. Either, either word can be translated either way. And we see that expressed here in verse 2 when he, he, he says, May he judge. Give the king your justice. May he judge your people. Give him your righteousness. And that way he will judge your poor with justice. David envisions a kingdom in which this reign of righteousness 
leads to a flourishing of the people. It's really, to me, neat to see David's heart. You know, he's, David messed up. In a lot of ways, David messed up. Obviously, the biggest, the biggest mess up of his life was um, with Bathsheba, where I, I, I will say, I'm gonna talk about this. Can I clue you in on Advent this year? There's something I've been meaning to do for Advent for about five years. Uh, about five or six years ago, I was, I was reading something and I um, uh, was reading through the genealogies and Matthew and picked up that there are actually four women in, David, in, in Jesus's genealogy. Tamar, um, Rahab, Ruth, and who's the fourth Bathsheba. And, and somebody was pointing out how unusual that was that women would be in any gene, genealogy anywhere at that time. And, uh, and I thought, well, that would be an interesting Advent series, the four women of the genealogies, talking about one of those women each week. And every year I w- would get distracted by a different topic until um, this year it all kind of connected and I was actually talking with Salome the other day and came up with the title for the Advent series because I I had decided that this year was going to be the four women. And the title of the Advent series this year is Four Worthless Women. Uh, A worthless daughter-in-law, a worthless prostitute, a worthless foreigner, and a worthless subject, Bathsheba. But I, I tell you all that, we're going to talk about that for Advent and uh, see how they all tie to Jesus. But Bathsheba was not a seducer of David. Bathsheba was a victim. And David used someone that he should have cared about and had compassion for. What David is praying for here is the opposite of what he did with Bathsheba when it's all said and done. And David messed up. He messed up with uh, Absalom. He messed up with with his stepdaughter who was raped by his son and all that stuff. He just messed up. But this is the guy that we should never forget that God said of only him, he's a man after my own heart. David is a man after my own heart. God said that about him. And God reference David's heart of a shepherd and his care for the sheep and his compassion of the people for the people he ruled over and here David is expressing that desire of his heart that he wants to see the flourishing of the people because uh, that's what's best for them what's best for the kingdom is the flourishing of the people so he prays for righteousness for his son Solomon. And he connects in verses three and four this this justice, this flourishing of justice and this flourishing of righteousness to the prosperity and fruitfulness and thriving of the people. He says, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressors. He, he talks about that kind of thing in, in verse 6. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that wrought water the earth. 
In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound. He speaks about a a kingdom in verse 16 where there's an abundance of grain in the land and on the tops of the mountains may it wave. David is envisioning this kingdom that because righteousness flourishes, because the king has a heart of righteousness and the king loves justice, that the whole kingdom flourishes in even places that were not intended for cultivation. The tops of mountains would be places where grain is produced, that it becomes farmland. David, David sees justice and righteousness tied to the prosperity and the fruitfulness and the thriving of the people. But, he, but more importantly, he believes that where there is a righteous ruler, he argues that there will be righteous people. And because there is a righteous ruler and right, a righteous people, he believes in verses in verse four that the most vulnerable will be defended, that children will be protected, and oppressors will be crushed. I'm going to say to you this morning again, in the kingdom of God's people, The expansion of the kingdom of God is most important. And if we want to see our world changed, it is not going to be primarily through the passing of new laws to restrict people's behavior. If we want to see a world where righteousness reigns, we need to see the expansion of God's kingdom. And that is not the establishment of a theocracy. That is a people who have a heart for righteousness in themselves and are burdened for other people to become righteous through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know how many different ways I can say that, but if you are frustrated with the direction of the United States of America, then share the gospel. If you are concerned about the direction of this world, then share the gospel. And if your response is, they don't want to listen, they won't even talk to me, then what you are saying is your God is not big enough to change the heart of an unbeliever. And therefore, I'm done. Let them burn. And I'm sad to say that's where the church in America at least has gotten. If you want a righteous world, then you must be a righteous person and we must bring righteousness to the people. And that's Jesus Christ. David knows that righteousness in a human being is only possible through the power of God in a person's heart. And his own son, Solomon, he says, God, give him righteousness. And if you do, the vulnerable will be defended, the children will be protected, and oppressors will be crushed. And there will be a righteous ruler who serves and cares for those who can offer him nothing in return. We are obsessed with the political process 
I'm going to say this. We are obsessed with the political process because we believe that a human being elected to office will bring in righteousness and godliness. And we are wrong. We need to stop hitching our wagons to the star of the latest politician who comes along and get get Jesus in our wagons and start introducing people to him again, believing that God can do something. Do you understand that the gospel is exploding in the southern hemisphere right now of the world? It's exploding in South America. It's exploding in Africa. It is exploding in Australia and New Zealand. It's exploding in Iran. It's exploding in China. If the gospel can be exploding in China and Iran, then can we not believe that the gospel is still powerful and God is powerful in the United States? They say that by 2040, if things continue the way they're going, China is going to be majority Christian. China. Where they kill them. Because the gospel is exploding and people are believing actually that in China, under the, th- under the thumb of that communist party that the gospel changes lives. We believe a political candidate is going to change our lives. Okay, I'll climb down off my horse right now. You know, as David prayed for these things, and you hear his heart here, and you know the story, it's sad to me that even though Solomon started out well, and was granted incredible wisdom, the historical records tell us that Solomon's heart turned away from Yahweh and turned to serve foreign gods. His first wife was an Egyptian princess, and he continued to marry foreign women, and he was warned not to do it because they will turn your heart away, and he ended up a worshiper of pagan gods. Because righteousness was not present in him, greed rose in his heart as he accumulated massive amounts of gold and silver, a practice that was forbidden for kings. And do you know when that was forbidden of the kings? They were not to marry foreign wives. They were not to accumulate gold and silver. They were not to accumulate horses. You remember? He had 40,000 stalls for his horses. The three things that was given to kings not to do in the first part of Solomon's story, we're told he did number one, he did number two, and he did number three. And you know where those words came out first? Moses. In Deuteronomy 17, when Moses was giving the law again to his people, and Scott Femler pointed this out to me a number of weeks ago, 
when Moses was giving the law of God to the second generation before they went into the land, he said, and when you have a king, that's funny, they weren't anywhere near that yet. Don't marry foreign women. Don't accumulate gold and silver. Don't accumulate horses. And by the way, you're going to write the, every king's going to write out the law for it so that he has a copy for himself and he's going to do it every year. And Solomon, check, check, check. His greed caused him to impose severe taxes to feed all of his wives and his concubines and build his opulent palaces and the poor became oppressed and his cronies flourished. David had a heart for his son to be a kind of king. David died. He didn't see. It's a good thing David didn't see what Solomon did. But the opposite of Psalm 72 is what happened. And you know, the reality is that as human beings, we have throughout history longed for leaders who rule in righteousness. We have longed for equity and security and prosperity for all people. But despite David's prayer, Solomon and every king that followed him had reigns marked by unrighteousness and injustice. Even the best of the kings that followed Solomon in the southern tribes. You didn't talk about the northern ten tribes. That, that's just a, that's a train wreck. But the southern 12 tribes, there were a couple kings who were a little better, but even still, we're told at the end of their lives, but they did not do this. Their hearts were divided, and there was unrighteousness and injustice. David not only prayed for a righteous and compassionate king, he prayed for an eternal and universal ruler. That almost seems kind of presumptuous, don't you think? It's like, you know, in, in sports, I used to coach, and, um, and uh, I know Shannon coaches, there's other people here who have coached or maybe you've played sports. Parents can be very difficult to deal with when it comes to coaching. Um, and, and if you think that ends after they're out of grade school or high school, no, it, I coached on the college level, it still continues on the college level. The parents show up at the game and they have certain expectations about their kid in that game. And, and sometimes it's even worse on the college level are the school administrators and their expectations of the coaches. But there, there is this um, expectation that parents have for their kids that are not always based in facts and reality. And David, as a parent of Solomon, who was going to become the king, I think David, to some degree, was trying to see God do with his son what he had not done himself. And that's not a bad thing. I don't know if David was trying to relive his life through Solomon, or if it was simply the good of, I, I, I blew it. I was not the best of kings, and I want Solomon to be that guy. But David prayed something very presumptuous, and that is that Solomon would forever rule and would rule over the entire earth. In verse 15, he cries out in his prayer, Long may the king, long live the king. Have you ever heard that before? It's a British, what they cry out for the British king. 
or the queen. Long live the queen. Long live the king. Their, their, national, their de facto national anthem is God save the queen or God save the king. Some of the countries that are still affiliated with uh, Britain that were part of the Commonwealth still sing that as their national anthem. That's their primary national anthem is God save the king, God save the queen. It's sung to our song that we call America the Beautiful, although the tune didn't come from America, it came from over there, and we borrowed it to, to make America the Beautiful. But they sing that. They'll sing that at the coronation of King Charles III. And David cries out to God, Long live the king! And in verse 17, he asks God that his name, that Solomon's name, endure forever and his fame continue as long as the sun. He talks about righteousness continuing and that peace abounds till the moon be no more. David is, is asking God to make Solomon a king forever. As long as that sun shines in the sky, God, let his name be famous. Let him endure. He wants an unending peace to come to the world, pointing us to, uh, to his desire that the entire earth, a universal rule over the entire earth, be what Solomon enjoys. In verses 9 to 11, he most clearly expresses his desire. In verse 8, beginning in verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. His enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. God didn't answer David's prayer with Solomon. And he didn't answer David's prayer with any of the kings that followed Solomon. To the day that Israel no longer had kings, David's prayer was never answered. And to be honest with you, I'm really glad that Solomon did not reign forever. How would you like to have him over us all? How would you like growing up, uh, raising your children and seeing that you have a, an attractive daughter and wonder if she's going to get chosen for one of the harems of Solomon? What a way to live. You think taxes are bad now? The first thing that the, that the leaders of, of the southern tribes, well, there wasn't the southern tribes yet, the leaders of all the kings, I mean, all the, all the tribes, came to Solomon's son and said, please, please reduce the taxes on us. It's killing us. It's literally killing us. And his son was like, you think Solomon was bad? You think my dad was bad? Wait till you see my tax plan which led to a splitting of the kingdom and the establishment of the northern ten tribes. If, if, if Solomon had, had boy, I, I can't even imagine being under the rule of Solomon if he was still alive. We'd have a lot of interesting things being published in the paper and heads would be rolling everywhere. 
Solomon did not rule forever, and Solomon had the largest kingdom of any uh, ruler of God's people. His kingdom was massive. But God didn't answer the prayer of David with Solomon. But what's really cool in the Bible is that one day God did answer David's prayer. There came a day when God answered David's prayer for a righteous king, a holy righteous king. He answered God's, David's prayer for a compassionate and caring king. He answered David's prayer for an eternal king. And he answered David's prayer for a universal king. And you know who that is. And in doing so, when God answered David's prayer, he fulfilled a promise to Adam and Eve that a son would be born who would crush the oppressor's head and bring peace. I, I, I just love the flow of Scripture. I, I, love to, I love to read my Bible and see these, these hints, these, these, little, these little moments where God drops something into the text and you're like, oh, that connects to this and that. There's this dot and that connects those two dots and that goes there. And, and as you read it, I mean, that, I mentioned earlier that, that theme of the, of the crushing of the serpent's head. Every time you read someone's head getting crushed, when you read the story about the female judge of Israel who drove a stake through the oppressor's head, your mind should go right back to Genesis 3. That's the point of that story. That's God saying, my promise, it's coming. Hang on, it's coming. Look at, I'm doing. When you read about serpents in the Old Testament, you're reading about the promise to Adam and Eve that there was a son who was going to be born who would crush the serpent's head. And when you read about enemies licking the dust, you're reading about the serpent crawling on his belly and eating our dust. That's the idea. That phrase, eat my dust, that is, that is, a, that is a great bumper sticker. If you want a bumper sticker, eat my dust. But that phrasing, licking the dust, is going back to that serpent now crawling in the dust and that's what he licks, he's conquered. And Jesus crushed the serpent's head. Delivered a moral blow. We can go all the way back to Genesis 3 and we come to David here with this and we can fast forward 400 years later, over 400 years later, God makes a promise of a king who will be righteous and having salvation. You're familiar with this prophecy. Scott is smiling at me because he knows where it comes from. And you guys in the Bible study should know where it comes from. It's Zechariah. Over 400 years after David, God drops another one of those little information bits to his people and says, I'm going to send you a king. You should be excited. 
Right now, be excited because I'm sending you a king and that king is going to be righteous and he's going to bring salvation. And this is the part you all know. He will be coming riding on a donkey. He will come riding on a donkey. He says that this king would speak peace to the nations. He says his rule will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Did you hear David's prayer in verse 8? May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. God says through the prophet Zechariah, I heard David's prayer. He doesn't say this outright, but this is what he's saying. I heard David's prayer and David's a man after my own heart and David wants what I want. And what I want is there's going to be a son born to a human being. And that human being who bears that son, that son is going to be a king that I'm sending to you. And you're going to recognize him because he's going to be coming as a king riding on a donkey. And he's going to rule from the sea to the sea. He's going to rule from the river, which they saw as one boundary of the earth, to the ends of the earth. He is going to have a dominion over every possible piece of this world because he's going to be my king and I own it all. It's mine. And one day that prayer was answered. He tells us here, he tells us in Zechariah, I'm listening. I heard your prayer. I heard David's prayer. And one day Jesus came born of a woman, the serpent crusher. And how was he, all of his ministry, Jesus was saying, don't tell anybody that I did this. Don't tell anybody who I am. Woman, my time has not come yet. But one day, the week before a momentous event happens, another momentous event happens. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem to the praises of the people. Hosanna, the king. And he's riding on a donkey. And he comes in righteousness. And he comes bringing salvation. Not how they thought. But God is now answering that prayer. He's answering the hopes of of humanity since Eve. He's he's answering the prayer of David and all the people who prayed for that serpent crusher to come. And Jesus comes riding on a donkey, gentle and lowly, righteous and just, bringing flourishing to the blind, the lame, the deaf, the hungry, the oppressed, the poor. Those who have sat in darkness have seen a great light And they have seen the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If you get nothing else out of this sermon today, I hope that every time you think of Jesus on Palm Sunday, you think of the serpent crusher coming in fulfillment of a promise and in fulfillment of a prayer. the righteous and just 
universal ruler who reigns with compassion, what we call mercy. How was his compassion shown? Well, we would typically start to list off all the people he healed and all that kind of stuff. But I want you to understand the greatest display of Jesus's compassion was seen in those hours that he hung on a cross and was put to death for the sins of his enemies. He came as the righteous king, bringing salvation and bringing righteousness to people who did not deserve it in any way, shape, or form. He came to rescue the lost. He came to bring light to darkened souls. God the Father then raised him from the grave and seated Jesus on a throne at his right hand where he rules as king. God gave him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is what? what? Scott you said it he is king to the glory of God the Father he is God to the glory of God the Father And he sits on his throne, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Do you know what the imagery of enemies are made his footstool? That's the idea that this conquering king sits back on his throne and rests his feet on the neck of the one he has conquered. That was a common practice of kings. They knew what it meant. It is the same imagery as crushing the head. Jesus' kingdom is universal. He reigns over those from every people and tribe and language and nation. He rules also over the entire creation. It was his work to create. His universal kingdom is not just from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth or from the sea to the sea or from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. His rule is over his whole creation. Every last star, gaseous blip out there in space, every black hole, he rules and reigns over all of it. We've got a spacecraft up in the sky right now, out there in the darkness of space, that is intended to bump into an asteroid at 14, with 14,000 pounds of force to, to bump it and see if we can change the trajectory of an asteroid just in case someday one's coming at the Earth and we're going to shove it out of the way. And Jesus can just go, or Jesus can just go asteroid move a little bit to the right he reigns and he rules he makes us look like pipsqueaks he holds the earth in the palm of his hand that's what David was praying for 
was a king that was so powerful and a king that ruled in their... This king, because he is righteous, would no longer have any wars between the people in the area that he ruled. There would be no more rebellions against the king and peace would permeate every aspect of the creation because the king of peace rules. Every last speck of anything, Jesus rules over in peace. But we're kind of like David here. David prayed. He died. And it took a long time before God brought an answer to his prayer. And during that time, a lot of people probably thought that God had forgotten them and he wasn't doing what he wanted, what they wanted, and he didn't care anymore. And then Jesus came and people got excited because they were beginning to recognize who he was. And then he died. And then he came back and he walked on earth for a period of time with his disciples and taught very confused guys truth that they didn't totally grasp until some time later. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, knowing that Jesus died, knowing that Jesus has ascended as king and has already began his rule over his kingdom, and yet we live in this mess. I had breakfast with a group of pastors on on Wednesday. It was really a nice time. It was the first time we've met since the summer. But one of them who is a little bit older than me, he's probably about four years older than me, he just just said to the group, "Um, I'm really glad I'm the age I am because what's happening and what's coming, I'm just glad I'm not going to be a pastor and I'm not going to be around anymore. And there were several of us who were his age and we all were just like, we got it. And he looked at the young guys and he said, I hope that you'll be faithful. It's a mess. And, and it's getting worse every day. And I think sometimes we reach a point that we wonder if God cares. Sometimes you feel, and I've said this before, as a pastor, sometimes you feel like you're just running around sticking your fingers in dikes and hoping that you can hold back something very small while you realize the dam is just getting ready to come down and crush you. You say, that's a very pessimistic view. Well, that's how it feels. Just trying to patch things up and praying that Jesus would return. And wondering if God hears your prayers, wondering if God is ever going to answer your prayer. And, and I say that as a pastor, that sometimes I feel that way. And I, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I often realize or come to the conclusion that you probably feel the same way at times. Because sometimes our faith is weak. 
And sometimes we pray for things that we don't see God do. And God says to us, Jesus reigns. Be at peace. Trust me. Wait. Just wait. And remember, I answered David's prayer. I answered David's prayer. And because I answered David's prayer, you now look forward to the fullness of the kingdom. Trust me. Trust me. And as I thought about that, as we are people who claim connection to the king and claim citizenship in the kingdom and believe that we are the children of God, as we wait, I thought, then how should we, how should I live as a citizen of the great King Jesus? And believe me, I think about this question all the time. The worse it gets, the more I think, how should I be living as a citizen of the kingdom of King Jesus? And I would quickly suggest to you four ways this morning. Number one, we should pursue righteousness in how we live with others because he has made us righteous. When David prayed for Solomon, give the king righteousness. David didn't realize his prayer was going to be answered in that a righteous king would come who had always been righteous. He didn't have to have righteousness given to him. A righteous king came and gave his people righteousness. When, it's almost like, I like to imagine things. And so this is not from the Bible. This is just my own creation and my own mind. But I, I want to think that as David prayed to God, who was, his physical presence was nearby in the tabernacle. As David prayed to God and said, give the king righteousness, I can hear God saying, oh David, your scope, your view is so small. It's so small. I'm not just going to give the king righteousness. I'm going to give a king who is righteous and always has been righteous and he's going to give righteousness to all of his subjects. David, your prayer was too small. I got something way better going on. And then my little mind thinks, when David died and he went to go to be with God. Did he get a chance to talk to God and God say, David, let me tell you about your prayer. Let me tell you what's coming. You don't just want a king who's righteous, who encourages people to be righteous. I'm sending a righteous king who's going to make people righteous. But then that brings me to a place where if I am righteous, is not that going to be lived out in a righteous way? So I think it's simple that we should be desiring to live with others in a righteous way because he has made us righteous. Second, 
And I won't belabor this point because we talked about it in Ecclesiastes, but we should also live with a long view, realizing the shortness of this life and longing for unending splendor of the next. I saw a uh, Facebook post this last week that somebody had posted, a friend of mine from high school had posted from something they picked up, and it said, some people say that life is short, so enjoy the moment. Others say eternity is long, so start preparing for it now. And I posted in the, the comment section, I said, I think Solomon in Ecclesiastes says both. Life is a vapor. Enjoy what God has given to you. Eternity is forever. Live with that in view. That's Solomon's message. The long view, because we realize how short this life is, keep that long view in mind and and be longing for the unending splendor of the next. When, When this world gets you down because of the mess that is in you and the mess that surrounds you. Live righteously in the moment. Never forget the unending splendor that's to come and long for it. Third, We should cultivate compassion in our hearts and be a helper and servant to those who cannot benefit us, who experience poverty, oppression, and violence. According to Psalm 72, compassion flows out of righteousness. If our hearts do not move in compassion towards those who are needy, then we should seriously question whether or not there is any righteousness in us. You cannot solve all the problems of this world. And as I said earlier, you should not believe that any other human being besides Jesus can solve the problems of this world, of America, the city of Cedar Rapids, or the family that resides in your home. But there are some who are in our sphere of influence to whom we should be showing compassion, not because it is just our duty, but because righteousness lives in us and that drives us to love and mercy for those around us. And fourth, finally, echoing this end of Psalm 72, we should live our lives blessing our King and blessing His glorious name now and forever. When we find ourselves angry at God or ambivalent towards God because He doesn't seem to care about us because he doesn't do what we want him to do. Those should be moments where we stand back and say, it's not his problem, it's my problem. 
And I need to be blessing the king. Righteousness leads to a blessing of the king. We have a God and a king who is perfect, has never ever made a mistake, has never ever thought or said, oops, rats, or other words. We should bless him and love him and follow him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Psalm 72 and it just resonates with me. It resonates in ways of things that I long for. Things that I believe need to be. When I read the news, as I see sin just exploding around me and as I see how sin grips my heart and squeezes away compassion and mercy and squeezes away blessing from my tongue for you I long I long for the kingdom to come in its fullness I long to see my king on the throne. And Father, I know that's not just my heart, but the heart of many here this morning. And many in that are gathering as believers across this country and across the world. And so, Father, I say, Maranatha, Jesus, come quickly. In the meantime, I ask you that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would grow righteousness in us. I ask you that you would, through the Holy Spirit's power, gift us for service to you and to others. Give us compassion for the hurting. Help us to stand with the oppressed. Father, do a work in us that causes us to see you as so great and powerful and as our King so pure and righteous and sovereign. And our hearts will pray to you more and more and find our hope more and more in you and what you can do instead of in our own power or the power of other humans around us. Help us to be righteous. Help us to encourage righteousness. Father, help us to figure out that that line between trusting you and and promoting righteousness in our land but most of all father help us to be people who speak of Jesus 
who speak of your great name, who believe that you are more powerful than the hardest human heart. And may we see people come to know you so that there are more names, more tongues to praise your name, and there are more hearts that love righteousness. May the kingdom come in your son's name. Amen.